and watch that introduction video that we've been showing um, throughout this God First series. And, and I, I love it because it's just a glimpse of some of the stories of what God uh, has been doing and is doing in our midst. And Greg and I have been talking a lot about how this is a, a church and a ministry of stories. Um, and some really exciting ones. Uh, you know, every month we're seeing people uh, be, get baptized and come to Jesus. And, you know, person by person by person, really exciting stories. And actually, I mean, every person in this room this morning, you know, you're a part of the story that is unfolding that God has always intended to happen here in this ministry, in this church. You're a part of that. And I believe with all my heart that we're just seeing the beginning of what God has planned for his church in this region north of Portland. It's really exciting. And so, you know, we've been kind of building up uh, through this God First initiative and this God First series, and we're kind of coming up to this place where we as a whole church are going to have this opportunity to respond to what God is calling us to do as we've been praying and seeking, God, what's my role financially in this? Because we're going to raise the money to build a church, a ministry upper center where we can reach this whole region for Jesus Christ. And, you know, getting to be a part of this from the beginning, these last 18 years, um, the stories have been amazing. Those stories. And I can't wait to see what the stories are going to be like for the next 18 years. And I believe that this is a moment that is going to have a huge impact on what God is going to do through our lives, in our lives, through this church to change the lives of many, many people. And so next Sunday... Just like the kids are doing this Sunday, next Sunday is our opportunity on April 7th to bring our commitment cards forward. And this commitment card um, is, you know, the tool, the discipleship tool that we've all been kind of praying over for these last weeks. And I kind of, I kept mine in my Bible. And it was a place where when I would go to kind of be with God in a very sort of intimate and quiet way, I really... um, started praying over this card and just asking because I know that if, if God calls each one of us to be a part of this in a particular way, if we all do that, then God's perfect plan is going to unfold so beautifully. And we're going to look back and say, look at what God did. And so this card, if you don't have one yet, you're going to find one today in your programs. And if there isn't for some reason, if there isn't one in your program, you can grab one at the back table there. Um, But this card, the way that it's mapped out, a lot of you know this already, but we'll go over it one more time here this morning because this last week is the opportunity to really just be be close with God in this and to come up uh, next Sunday with this card. And so on this card, you'll see in your first box, right, if you look at it, you'll see it says... What I or we normally give um, in, a, in a year to White Pine Community Church. And you don't have to fill that number in. That's more of a tool for you. All of this in the gray area um, on this card is really a tool more than anything else for you and God to kind of pr- think through together what God wa- is calling us to do. The next box says, my or our expanded annual generosity as a part of the God First initiative. And so this is the number that, you know, if God is calling us to, to expand our giving and to, and to pour out more of the generosity that God has given us to be a part of raising the funds to build this church, that's where you're going to put that number. And then remembering that this initiative is a two-year initiative. This is a two-year um, generosity initiative. And so you're going to take that number and you're going to multiply it by two years and write your number down. And you can add that monthly giving or weekly giving over the next two years to anything that God may be calling you a gift 
um, stored resources. Um, Mark Layton has been so generous to offer his professional guidance and how to do that effectively, how to take um, money from stored resources and contribute that. And you add all that up, and then in the bottom portion of this, in the white, you're going to see this is our total two-year God-first commitment, May 2019 through May 2021. And these are the funds that we're going to raise together. Our goal um, is, is to raise... Um, uh, three, well, 1.8 million beyond our normal, our normal giving. And so we're going to raise a total of $3 million over two years, which is going to set us up to respond to the opportunity that God gives us to buy land and to begin building a church facility. So next week, bring this card, bring it filled out, and during the service, we're going to have an opportunity to come forward and to lay these cards down at the feet of God right here on this stage together as a church. I can't wait to see what God's going to do with that. It is really going to be exciting. We had an advanced commitment night a couple of weeks ago, and the stories that we heard that night um, about how God was calling individuals um, to be a part of this in, in certain ways and the kind of joy and experience that people were having in their relationship with God just by saying yes, not even doing it yet, but just saying, yes, God, I will respond. And that night was so exciting because the generosity exhibited that night was extraordinary. Um, we're going to end up sharing what the total amount is that God has given, but just that one night, um, the generosity was extraordinary. God is moving, and this is going to happen. God is going to do this, and we're going to get to be a part of it. So we want to just encourage you to be praying over this card yet uh, this week if you haven't yet, um, and come ready next week to respond. The stories are... Um, so incredible through this series and getting to just talk to people one by one and seeing what happens in, in individual lives when we just say yes to whatever God is calling us to. When we say yes to God, extraordinary things happen. And we're going to see one of those stories right now of a family in our church who have been going through this process together and praying, and it's been hard at times. But they've come to this place together, and we're going to watch that video right now of Brad and Marley Knowles. Uh, my name is Brad Knowles. Uh, this is my wife, Marley Knowles, and we've been going to White Pine for about three and a half years. So when it comes to giving for us, and I'm, I've got to figure a lot of couples struggle with this from time to time as well. Um, it was challenging for us to get to the same page when it came to giving. Um, it was, you know, no different than any other budget item kind of in our household. You know, it was always a little bit of a conversation with all of it. And about a year, year and a half ago, we really set the time aside to really have that conversation and really be purposeful about it. I remember having a conversation with Greg where he sent me to a, a whole book of the Bible and to just look at that book in the Bible as it pertained to money, um, which I think helped in my thinking on it as well. And um, we finally came to a place where we were really felt led to give at a certain level and um, and really felt very comfortable with it. Um, so it, it wasn't a momentary thing. It was it was definitely a journey for us. Well, and I, I think it's so very important that it's coming from the right place. Yeah. That I don't want to be doing something feeling duty-bound or obligated because I lose the gratitude, which is, I think, what should be behind it is to recognize what God provides for us and to be cheerfully 
you know, acknowledging that by giving. And so that I think is also yeah. such a big part of the conversation that we've had, you know, continuously of, right. you know, we don't, I don't want this to feel like we have to do this. I want to feel thankful that we have all that we have. And, and this is something that, that we can show God that we know that he is providing. So a lot of the conversations that I think God first is kind of prompting individuals to consider couples to consider. Um, we've been in a journey of those, a lot of those same questions for the last couple of years. So it was kind of picking up to some extent where we were already in conversation, which was great. Um, and still challenging us to think like, are, you know, are we really putting God at the center of everything? And if we were, what would we be doing different than we're doing today? That kind of thing. So um, initially it was, it was a little challenging, um, but it's been really good. It's been really good since. I'm excited about the God First Initiative because I think it's going to be something that really challenges the church to grow spiritually, um, challenges us to really look at what the next steps for this church are. You know, those founding, you know, three couples had such an incredible vision and to some extent, our vision has to go to that next level now. And uh, that's going to require a lot of effort. It's going to require effort. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require, you know, putting my neighbor first before even things that we want to do as a family. And, but it's so rewarding. I really liked at the Vision and Worship Night that Greg put out there that uh, a very practical reality of moving forward for the church is to raise the funds to do it, but that God has put us all here at this time to first grow spiritually with him and from that see where it takes the church. And so that's what I would encourage people to focus on is there's a reason why you're here at White Pine right now. There's a reason why this is all happening right now, and let's let's really seek what God wants for us and and how we can draw closer to Him and, and see what comes from that. Well, I love to hear uh, the different stories. I wish we that we could just get everybody's story because there's something about um, people just sharing their stories where you hear unique things and then you just hear these overlapping themes that um, all of us are, uh, you know, working through as, as we're trying to figure out what God wants us to do. There are several specific things that Brad and Marley talked about that I appreciate. I like the fact that Marley really gets that this is more a spiritual thing than it is a financial thing, that we do have a financial challenge, but we're allowing that to just spur us on to grow spiritually. That, that's the main thing that we want to see happen is for all of us to become more like Jesus in, in this area of our lives. And uh, Marley also talked about the importance of motives in, in giving, which uh, there's a passage that I've heard talked about um, lots of different times during this series, and she kind of paraphrased it where uh, it says, each of you, this is in 2 Corinthians 9, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Absolutely, we want all of the gifts that are given in this campaign to be uh, to fit that that attitude right there. And Brad um, acknowledged the reality that 
uh, for a couple that's trying to decide this together, there's usually some really important conversations that have to go on because rarely do we think exactly like our spouse does in this part of our lives. And I just want to encourage you that if you are having those conversations or maybe you're afraid to have those conversations, um, God planned for you to be married to the person that you're with. You both are different for a reason. There's something in that for you. And uh, good things will come from having even what might be a hard conversation and trying to get on the same page. The other thing that Brad... Um, mentioned, which I really appreciated, was that we have, exam- we have examples to follow. We've been talking about those three couples that started this church 18 years ago and the, um, the vision and the faith and the commitment and the generosity that they had can really encourage us and inspire us to follow their example in taking um, our church's ministry to the next level. D.L. Moody said, a good example is far better than a good precept. That is true. It is so much more motivating to watch someone that you respect and to say, I want to be like that, than it is to listen to a preacher say, you need to be like that, right? We, we like the one more than the other. And it, it doesn't minimize the importance of being challenged by biblical teaching, but no doubt we are more deeply impacted by examples than we are by exhortations. Edgar Guest wrote, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather want you to walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. Now I know that my soul has been as nourished by the faithful Bible teaching I have received as my body has been nourished by all the healthy meals I have been served. But I remember about as many sermons as I do meals. What sticks in my memory and what inspires me to be a better person, like no sermon ever has, are exemplary people that God has given me the privilege to watch. Almost every important value that I hold is something that I learned not through instruction, but through observation. I wasn't pushed by a leader. I was pulled by the example set for me by someone I admired. And one of the values that has rubbed off on me through exposure to great role models has been that of generosity. Now, I will be the first to admit that I have so much room to grow in this area of my life. But whatever progress I have made, I owe to a handful of people who have shown me what a beautiful thing it is to give as freely as we have received. I'll bet that what you do with your money and with your possessions has been profoundly influenced by your role models. You may have had good role models or you may have had not so good role models. But your giving habits have probably been shaped as much or even more by what you have seen in them than what you have heard in sermons or read in the Bible. So why would I think that teaching you the Bible for the next half hour is going to make any lasting difference? Well, first of all, I believe that the Bible does have divine power every time you teach it, but also all of these passages that I'm going to be showing you today do not teach precepts. They just give examples. We're going to look at four different passages in the New Testament, each one of which 
gives us a glimpse of an unusually generous person. You're probably going to be inspired by by some more than others just because you're going to be able to relate to them. But I'm really excited to show them to you because I think that they represent what we have the potential to become. I'm just going to take them in chronological order and give you some personal reflections on these people and what I think the Spirit of God wants us to learn from their example. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 19. If you have a Bible, this is the passage I want you to find. Luke 19. Uh, In the New Testament, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all biographies of Jesus. And so Luke's the third one there. It's on page 852, if you have a church Bible with you, 852. This chapter begins with the story of an encounter that Jesus had with a man who never expected the Messiah to give him the time of day. If you think that you are unworthy of God's love, you're going to enjoy this story. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He was passing through because he had set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to die. And Jericho was just one of the cities along that route. But verse 2 says that a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Why was he wealthy? Well, he was at the pinnacle of a pyramid scheme. Tax collectors were Jewish men who collected tax revenue from their fellow Jews for the hated Roman government. And they already had no friends, so they thought, why not make a little extra on this? They were notorious for uh, collecting more than than was owed and pocketing the extra. And, And on its way to the Romans, the tax revenue had to go through the hands of the chief tax collector, and he took his cut. So Zacchaeus was filthy rich in every sense of the term. He had, he had sacrificed integrity and respect on the altar of greed. But Luke includes a curious detail about Zacchaeus. Verse 3 says that he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Perhaps only a short person can fully appreciate Luke's mention of Zacchaeus's height. In his reflection on this passage, Ken Geyer wrote this, somehow this short man had survived growing up in a tall world, growing up the object of stares, growing up the brunt of jokes, growing up the kid who got pushed around, In the jostled process of growing up, a part of his childhood was trodden underfoot, and that tender part of him died, crushed under the calloused and often cruel feet of the tall. And yet he carries that stepped-on part of himself everywhere he goes. But somewhere along the way to adulthood, Zacchaeus learned to compensate, first to laugh at the jokes, and later to fight back. And so as he climbed the professional ladder, he stepped on anyone who stood in his way, anyone on the next rung up. He would show them, show them all. Someday they'd look up to him. At last he made it to the top, chief tax collector. Isn't that an interesting angle on the story? 
So often, people's worst traits can be traced back to their deepest pain. What we see as wickedness, Jesus detects as woundedness. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Again, quoting Ken Geyer, Zacchaeus feels the darkness of his soul shrinking back. For years he has rendered unto Caesar, and now he must render unto Christ an account of himself. And his soul knows that the account isn't good. The ledger is filled with entries of money extorted, money under the table, money skimmed off the top. Money, money, money. That's the bottom line for Zacchaeus. But the Savior isn't looking for an audit. He is looking for something else. He searches Zacchaeus' eyes to find that stepped-on part of his life. And on it he sees every footprint, every heel mark. Jesus is moved with compassion for the little boy who had grown up in a big man's world. Somehow Zacchaeus felt Christ's undeterrable grace. And verse 6 says that he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now don't get the order of things backwards. It was salvation that produced generosity, not generosity that purchased salvation. Zacchaeus was a lost man with no friends until Jesus saw through his greed to his need. And Zacchaeus' gratitude for the grace he had been given was so intense that he had to find a way to say thank you. So he did, he did it with that which, he had, which, which had always been most valuable to him, his money. Maybe there's someone here who has achieved wealth at the expense of what you now know to be more valuable things. But Jesus did not see you as a lost cause, just as a lost soul. And he paid for your sins. And he gave you a fresh start as a free gift. So now, what are you going to do with that that grateful heart of yours and with all that money? Zacchaeus just might show you the way. Now, go left in your Bible to Mark 12. It's the book right before Luke. It's on page 825, Mark 12. Here we're going to find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. He arrived on a Sunday, and he has been back every day since, sparring with special interest groups. And now it is Wednesday, midday. And we are about to witness the giving of the largest financial donation made by anyone in the Bible. 
Mark 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Gosh, I just read that and I go, wow, if I apply that to myself, like he's always watching everything that I do with my money. Let me just say what we know about the temple treasury. Um, It consisted of 13 receptacles that were spaced out along the same wall of an outer courtyard in the temple. They were made of metal and they were cone-shaped, narrow on one end, wide at the other. Which was the top and which was the bottom, we don't actually know. It could have been that the narrow end was at the top so people couldn't steal money that others had given. Or it could have been that the wide end was at the top and the narrow end led into maybe a box beneath, like a, like a funnel. In which case, the, the offerings that were given would have made uh, like a congratulatory sound as they descended into those, those coffers. In any case, Jesus knew, whether through the human senses of sight and hearing or because of his divine omniscience, that many rich people threw in large amounts. That's what it says at the end of verse 41. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Well, that's not much, is it? Tiny little brass wafers hardly made a clink. But the heart of Jesus was tuned to the frequencies of sacrifice and faith. And so this gift was music to his ears. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. One commentator says, though Jesus sat still, he was inwardly on his feet clapping. Why? Because he doesn't measure giving like we do. We think it's all about how much we give. But the true test is how much we have left over after we give. On December 1st, 1912, the pastor of Temple Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Russell Conwell, delivered a sermon to his 15,000 congregants, which he titled, The History of 57 Cents. He told them about a little girl by the name of Hattie Mae Wyatt, whom he had met 26 years earlier when the church was very small. In fact, it was so small that people had to obtain tickets to attend, both adults and children. Hattie Mae Wyatt was unable to get into Sunday school that day until Pastor Conwell scooped her up in his arms and brought her into the building and and pointed to the last seat back in the dark corner of the room. And later, when he saw Hattie again, he, he was walking to church from home, and he had to go through a very poor neighborhood, and he saw her there. And, and he told her that someday the church would be large enough for all the kids to get in, although he admitted later that it was more of an imaginary vision than a plan. Sometime later, uh, Pastor Conwell 
was told that Hattie was very sick and he was asked to come to the family's home to pray for her and he did that but he sensed as he was praying for her that she was not going to get better and she didn't she died and when she when she died he went back to the home to comfort her family and Hattie's mother handed him a little sack of coins she said that Hattie had been saving up because she wanted to help pay for the new church building and he, He counted the money and it was 57 cents. And in this sermon that he gave, 26 years later, Pastor Conwell shared some of the ways that God had multiplied that gift. It started when he converted all of the coins into pennies. And he then auctioned them off one at a time to the members of uh, of the church. Raised a total of $250. And that was the first of several creative and miraculous ways the money grew. And by 1912, Temple Baptist Church had a large sanctuary and a large children's wing, as well as a hospital that treated about 40,000 patients a year, and a college, Temple University, which in the years since its founding had trained 80,000 students, including 2,000 pastors. In his sermon, this is what Russell Conwell said about Hattie Mae Wyatt. Men may have powers of eloquence. They may sing with all the sweetness of angelic voices. And yet they may not speak as Hattie Mae Wyatt speaks tonight. As she will speak through your life as you go out and do differently from what you would have done if you had not been here. Hattie Mae Wyatt is speaking in tones of eloquence. Sweet, divine, and powerful moving on upon the ages. Many men are counted great. Many men are given credit for that which they do not do. But here is a life filled with motive power that sweeps on for all time. And like that little girl, this old woman that Jesus commended has been a role model for those through the ages whose limited resources make them wonder if their gifts really matter. Listen, if, if, if what you give is a genuine sacrifice, and it requires you to trust in God for your basic necessities, you can be sure that that gift is of great value to Jesus. What an inspiring example this dear woman is to everyone who has been made to feel insignificant by this world's faulty way of measuring generosity. Now, I'm going to have you turn over a page or two to chapter 14. We're going to look at a scene that uh, took place just a few hours uh, later. And if you just kind of skim the first couple of verses of chapter 14, you'll, you'll, you'll realize that the death of Jesus is near He knows it, and a woman who loves him deeply somehow knows it too. Her name is Mary. Uh, She has a sister named Martha, a brother named Lazarus. Those two names may remind you of two previous scenes in the Gospels. In one, Jesus comes, he he went to the home of, of Mary and Martha for a meal, and Martha got mad at Mary because she sat at the Lord's feet listening to him talk to her instead of helping in the kitchen. 
And, and Jesus told Martha that her stress was unnecessary because he didn't expect anything elaborate. And that actually Mary's decision to set aside her work to listen to him was better than Martha's well-meaning busyness. No doubt the priority Mary placed on just being with Jesus accounts for her affection for him. And then their brother got very sick. They sent word to Jesus, whom they knew had the ability to heal Lazarus. But by the time he showed up, Lazarus had been dead for four days. That was no hurdle to Jesus. He simply ordered that the stone over the tomb be removed. And then he told Lazarus to come out. He raised Mary's brother from the dead, which of course just made her love Jesus all the more. And now he he was in their home or in their town, the town of Bethany. was actually another man's home. Verse 3 says that he was reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Here's another man whose life had been so radically changed by Jesus, cleansed and healed of that terrible isolating disease, now enjoying fellowship with his friends. The Gospel of John says that this dinner was in Jesus' honor and that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all there. John says that Lazarus was among those who was reclining at the table with Jesus. And guess where Martha was? She was up and about serving. (laughs) It's just her nature. And then Mary comes into the picture. She came, middle of verse 3, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure Indian nard. It was most likely a family heirloom, which had both monetary and sentimental value. And what did Mary do with it? She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. John adds that she anointed his feet with the perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And he says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's hard to know which was more shocking, the awkwardness of the moment or the irresponsibility of it. Verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. William Barclay described Mary's gift first with the word extravagance. And then, as if that's not quite enough, recklessness. G. Campbell Morgan praised the emotion, the passion that compelled Mary to do what she did. He said, if it be the Christ who masters our emotions, then let us trust them. And let us obey them. 
Let us decline forevermore to listen to the mechanical, arithmetical, accurate, prudent, and devilish calculation that prevents waste. Let us dare to pour out our hearts and ourselves in emotional adoration. And if I can quote one more writer's reflection on this scene, here's what Ken Geyer said. Soon the alabaster body of Jesus would be broken. Blood would spill from the whip, from the thorns, from the nails, and finally from the spear thrust in his side. A perfume more precious than nard. It would cover the stench of mockers rabbled around the cross. It would flow to fill the earth with its fragrance. It would ascend to heaven to reach the very nostrils of God. So pure, so lovely, so truly extravagant. The Savior had come to earth to break an alabaster jar for humanity. And Mary had come that night to break one for Him. It was a jar she never regretted breaking nor did he. What an amazing example we have in Mary. From her and from Jesus, we learn that when it comes to giving, love is a better guide than math. To give extravagantly, to give recklessly, out of unrestrained affection for Jesus is a beautiful thing. Now, let's look at one more very different role model of generosity. It's over in Acts chapter 4. So, you're going right from the Gospel of Mark to Acts 4, page 886. We're going to look at what's actually the second dimension in the book of the extraordinary generosity of the early Christians. The first time we see it is right after the day of Pentecost, the day, that day that the, the Spirit of God was poured out on the church and it grew in numbers from 120 to 3,120. That's how much difference it makes to be clothed with power from on high. But it wasn't just the growth of the church that was astounding. So was the love that was expressed by those Spirit-filled people through acts of generosity. Acts 2 says that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It wasn't compulsory sharing. It was spontaneous sharing. They didn't do it because they had to. They did it because they wanted to. And the reason they wanted to was because the love of God had been poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit God Himself had come to live in them. And that made them as generous as Jesus. And it happens again in verse 4, in chapter 4. Verse 31 describes a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit that saturated the entire church. And the very next verse, verse 32, says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Wow, let that sink in. Everybody's needs were met. How did that happen? 
keep reading. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Maybe you've read that enough times before that it doesn't shock you, but that's really astounding. Try to put that in in today's world. Let's say that this is what happened at White Pine Community Church. How newsworthy would it be? How much difference would it make in the impact of our church on the communities that we seek to reach if we were known as the church in which people sold houses and lands to meet the needs of those who were less fortunate? Did the people in the Bible really do that? Yep. In fact, one of them is identified in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the first mention of Barnabas in the Bible. Um, He shows up several more times, and typically he's encouraging others in some practical way. The Spirit of God poured out such love in his heart that he joyfully made do with less so that others could have more. You know, sometimes the wealthy, wealthy Christians, get a bad rap in church pulpits. And I suppose that it's, it's, it's an ex- something that makes sense because there's a lot in the Bible about the dangers of wealth. Um, and there are stories about those who have, who have mismanaged their wealth. But this is a story of a guy who did it right. Barnabas was a relatively wealthy man who is a great role model for those whom God has entrusted with more money than they need. The Apostle Paul said to a pastor by the name of Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's the precept. Barnabas is the example. May he encourage all of us to respond to the leading of God's Spirit, to share what God has given us with those who lack what we have. Now, these are not the only passages in the Bible that show us real-life examples of generosity. Um, I've been intentional today about focusing on individuals. And I'll tell you, if we had more time, I would love to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What a great chapter that is, and how much practical help it gives us in trying to figure out how to, how to give to God. In fact, this week, a lot of you are going to be thinking about this, because you know that next week is, is our Commitment Sunday, and, and you know that you have a decision to make, and you might have conversations with your spouse or with, with trusted advisors. But one of the things that I hope that you will do is to read 2 Corinthians 8. One way of remembering it is in that God First booklet. If you look down there on the bottom right-hand page, there's a memory verse from that chapter. Just remember, that's the chapter that Greg asked us to read. So much there to help you in this process. But today I just wanted you to be inspired by some great biblical role models. Zacchaeus. 
who shows us that generosity is a wonderful way to express gratitude to God. And the poor widow, whose precious gift prompted Jesus to teach us that he measures our giving not in dollars and cents, but in sacrifice and faith. And Mary, who demonstrates the beauty of throwing caution to the wind and giving extravagantly and recklessly out of affection for Jesus. And Barnabas, who models for us how much more generously we leverage our resources when we are following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And just so you know, uh, we have some pretty amazing givers right here at White Pine. Now, we've been very careful to maintain confidentiality and privacy throughout this whole time, but there's no way that all of us can fully engage in such an exciting process without a few stories leaking out. Let me just, let me just tell you a few of these. There's a man in our church who's decided to sell his classic car and to give half the money to the God First Initiative. There's a woman who's been living in a minivan for the last two years. She made a decision to do that because she had debts to pay, and this was her way of paying them off quickly. And she has decided to continue to live in her van for the next two years so that she can give to God the same amount of money that she has been giving to her debtors. There's a couple in our church that's been faithfully giving a regular portion of their personal income to the church, but their small business has been thriving. And as they have sought the Lord, He has led them to give regularly from their business profits as well. And there's a husband whose wife has been struggling to see her job as a calling from God. And he suggested to her that she give all of the money that she makes to the God First initiative since what he makes is sufficient to meet the needs of their family. I'm telling you, God is at work here. And we've said this so many times before, but our primary goal is 100% engagement. You know what that means? It means that the issue is not how much money we, we raise. What's important to us is how many of us get involved. How many of us really put God first in our lives and, and seek His will and do whatever He leads us to do. And my hope is that, to, that today's message has inspired you to follow the example of all these wonderful role models that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray for um, everyone here who is a part of our church and um, is being challenged to be involved in this initiative, that you will, you'll use it in their lives in a positive way, that this week will be a very special time in their relationship with you. As they seek you with all their heart, and as you speak to them in so many different creative ways, God, may, may, may all of us really, really put you first. We don't do that in our flesh. We don't do that by nature. But your spirit has been poured out into our lives. And may, may we follow his leading and, and give ourselves to you like never before. 
And we all who have experienced such amazing love and grace from you want to pray for anybody here who's never experienced that. We pray that somehow, though we've talked about money today, that you would help them to understand that they don't have to earn your love. Give them the ability to understand that Jesus died for them. And give them the grace to embrace that gift, to welcome that truth, to invite Christ into their lives. Please make them a part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.